Hi, and welcome to the TBS podcast. I'm here today with Professor Craig Evans. Uh, Dr. Evans, welcome to the TBS podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here. You are an expert, sir, in ancient Near Eastern uh, matters, specifically the literature of the late Second Temple period, and we're going to do a seminar here at TBS on that in February. I look forward to it. It's going to be very interesting, and the students are going to be hearing things they did not know. Well, I didn't have to twist your arm to do it because this is like in your wheelhouse. It is, it is. So uh, we're going to do four sessions on a Saturday morning. So it's uh, February the 17th, 9.30 in the morning to 2.30 in the afternoon. We feed you in the middle of that. So two sessions before lunch, two sessions after lunch. Let's talk about the content of the seminar. So uh, session one is on the Apocrypha. So what is Apocrypha? Well, the Apocrypha would be those extra books that are in the Old Testament in the Catholic Bible and also in the Greek Orthodox and Syriac, uh, Syrian Church Bibles. They're not in the Protestant Bible. And because of that, a lot of Protestants think, oh, they're heretical or they're of no value. They shouldn't mm. be in the Bible. We shouldn't even read them. And uh, <clears throat> that's mostly wrong because these Apocryphal books, no, we don't regard them as inspired, of course. I don't think they ought to be in the Bible, but... We need to know them because they give us information about what everybody knew and assumed in the time of Jesus. If I'm not mistaken, Luther called them deuterocanonical, like a second level of yeah, inspiration. And that was the official name that the Catholic Church gave to them because it wasn't until 1530-something that the Catholic Church officially canonized. Right. It had always been sort of in limbo. The, right. these books and people would cite them because they could provide some useful information but it wasn't until the Reformation that it really became an issue because Luther says we shouldn't use these writings because they undermine the truth in inspired canonical scripture mm. and the Catholic Church pushed back said well then we're going to make them canonical and they canonized most of them not all of them but most of them so that's where all that comes from all right, let's talk about a few of these that folks are going to learn about in the seminar. Second Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, and Susanna. What are these books about? Well, Second Maccabees tells the story of the Maccabean Revolt, where the Jewish people regained their freedom hmm. by defeating uh, the uh, Syrian Greeks up north. And so it has, it's a theologically oriented book, but it's fascinating in the way it talks about the sovereignty of God helping the Jewish people. And one of the passages sheds light on the New Testament. We all know in the, uh, in the book of Acts, um, Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, strikes the church. He mm. kills James, son of Zebedee. Right. He imprisons and wants to kill Peter. Mm. And then he's bragging. He's, in, he's at Caesarea Maritima. He's in front of a group. Uh, we actually know the actual location. Sure. And somebody shouts out, oh, my goodness, this guy's a god. And he's wearing his fancy robe. It's glistening in the sunlight. And he doesn't stop and give credit to God. He just smiles. He's eating it up. And Luke tells us in Acts that suddenly he's, oh, he's in pain. He doubles over, falls down. He's eaten of worms and dies. Right. What does that mean, eaten of worms? Mm. Second Maccabees makes it clear that's divine judgment. And that's exactly what happens to uh, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. He's arrogant. He's trying to mm. harm the Jewish people. I'm going to destroy the people. He's so angry at him. He said, I'm going to turn Jerusalem mm. into a cemetery. 
and on his way, ah, he has a horrible pain, he's eaten of worms, he dies. Mm. And so anybody hearing the story in Acts, whether they're reading it or they're there when it happened in the 40s A.D., they realize, oh, I think this is the hand of God yeah, on the, him. Yeah, yeah, he got what was coming to him. <laughs> yeah. Now, Second Maccabees also, spoiler alert here, also gives us a hint of where the Ark of the Covenant might be. Like Jeremiah tells us a little bit of what, what he may have done with it. So folks may want to tune into that. Um, the story of Judith, we don't have to get into now, but boy, what a rich story. And Christian artists, I mean, what they have done with this painting of Judith decapitating the Syrian leader. I think folks will really find that interesting. Well, they will. And, of course, uh, the whole idea of Judith, you might say, okay, look, this is spurious. This never happened. It's unhistorical. Yeah, but Judith is written in a time to encourage the Jewish people to remain faithful and trust God. Hang in there, trust God, obey the laws of Moses. Don't give in to the pagans. Mm. And why, why? Let me tell you the story of Judith. And, and of course, it's bollocks, a lot of this history. It's kind of all mixed up. Is this guy a Babylonian? Is he an Assyrian? I mean, what's going on exactly? Uh, a fic fictional Jewish city that's surrounded by a pagan mm -hmm. army. But the point here is, if you have faith in God, and Judith did, you can score a big victory. And so she gets this guy drunk, whacks off his head, gets away with it. And when, this, when the pagan army realizes that Holofernes, Holofernes, their great general, is dead, they, they panic and they flee. So it makes that point. And that's what some of this, um, it may be fictional, but the literature gives us a good idea of what people were thinking sure. and how they had faith in God. Sure. Um, and really an overarching message that God can use anyone. I mean, here's this humble woman, and she saves Israel. Yeah, yeah she's not a mighty warrior. She's not, uh, you know, she's not uh, Samson. Or she's not David, just a woman. And she defeats the besieging army. Okay, Susanna. How does Susanna shed light on the trial of Jesus? Now, we'll get the, the whole story in the seminar, but give us the short version. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, this is so confusing to interpreters. In chapter 14, Jesus is before the high priest, and he's being falsely accused of various things, and that's so they can get an indictment against him and send him to the Romans, where he'd be put to death. And so in verse uh, uh, 58, it says, Two witnesses came forward and said, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple. Well, they go, okay, two guys are obviously on the same page. They're speaking in unison. And the very next verse says, and, but their testimony didn't agree. Mm. Well, how did it not agree? They just, they're saying the same words. Susanna, a writing that by this time would have been just over 100 years old, explains it. Because in that story, two guys accuse the righteous Susanna of an act she didn't commit. Mm. And the young Daniel comes in and says, just a minute. And of course, they're on the same side, same page. They're both saying, we saw her do this. They separate them, question them separately, and their accusation falls apart. Mm. We should infer from that, that's exactly what happens when the Sanhedrin has these witnesses. You can't assume they're all evil men. There are many men in that Sanhedrin saying, look, we've got to do it fair. We've got to follow sure. the law. Separate the witnesses, question them mm. separately, and their testimony collapsed. Mm. And that's why, even though it seems so strange to us, their testimony turned out not to agree 
Excellent. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. Let's let's talk about the second session on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, you've written pretty extensively on this. You actually studied under some of the the, the original Dead Sea Scrolls uh, scholars. Uh, we're going to look at s- some different passages, like one Q uh, Samuel, four Q two forty six, and so just pick out one or two of these and tell us why this matters to the average Bible reader, the person wanting to understand. Old and New Testaments today? Well, you can, uh, from a Christian point of view, you can break the scrolls down into two basic topics. The first one is, how well do the scrolls preserve the Hebrew Bible? And that's an important question because before the scrolls were found, uh, the Hebrew Bible, you know, what's Mm. behind our Old Testament English translations and so on, is a text that dates to about 1000 A.D. Mm. With the discovery of the scrolls, we jump back in time 11, 12 centuries. I like to use the example of the great Isaiah scroll. I mean, it could be 200 B.C. There were actually people at one time saying, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, matches the Jesus story so closely, Mm. it must have been composed by a Mm. Christian. Mm. Oh, really? Well, now you have the great Isaiah scroll that's 200 years or more before Jesus is crucified. And there's the text. It's there. Isaiah 53 is there. But there are some other things that scholars knew had to be a problem in the Masoretic text. Psalm 145 is an alphabet or acrostic psalm, uh, as you you know in Hebrew, A B C D, right through the whole alphabet. Each verse beginning with that letter. Well, L M, but the N is not there, and that would be between verses 13 and 14. What happened okay. to the N verse? Well, the Greek has it. Well, that's the Greek. Maybe the Greek's a correction. Mm. Well, thanks to Qumran, we now have a Hebrew scroll of that psalm, and the inverse, Ne'eman, faithful, is there. Oh, we also know how tall uh, a Goliath is okay, now. I know, so. I know that's what you've been, I know, you've been <laughs> wondering about that. Well, okay, let me set the table for you. So <laughs> a lot of us grew up reading uh, the King James or New King James or you know, other translations like this, uh, NRSV, based on the Masoretic text telling us that he's uh, nine foot six or something like this, then we started reading the footnotes down here and it says, well, the LXX, the Septuagint, says he's six foot nine or something like that. So you're telling us that the (laughs) Dead Sea Scrolls can help settle this. All right. Yep, that's right. I'm all ears. Well, see, you could say the Hebrew is probably, the, of the Masoretic text, is probably correct. And so the Greek translator is saying, my goodness, there's nobody that tall. And so he changes what the Hebrew says, six cubits mm-hmm. and a hand breadth. Whew, that is really tall. And he, and he reduces it to four cubits and a hand breadth. And so we go from nine and a half feet to six and a half feet, basically. So is that really what he's doing, a rationalizing approach? Let's make this guy a little shorter. He's still really tall. Well, at Qumran, we actually found a uh, Hebrew text, very important Hebrew text, of 1 Samuel. Okay. And, uh, it, and it agrees with the Greek. It says mm. four cubits. Oh. So, and it's a good, it's a good scroll, mm. too, because we know there's something so it's, missing. It's, it's a Hebrew scroll. It's a Hebrew scroll, okay. and it agrees with the with Greek. With the Greek Septuagint, right. uh, lending weight to the idea that Goliath was six and a half feet, which means he was a giant of a man, but oh, not yeah. necessarily a supernatural giant. At six foot five or six, whatever that exact uh, measurement would be, he'd be a head, a head taller than anyone else. 
He'd wow. be taller even than uh, Saul, who was considered a tall man. Okay, so let's move on uh, real quickly on sessions three and four. So what is the pseudepigrapha? Well, the pseudepigrapha is a collection, and how many writings are actually belong to it, we don't know because we continue to find them. But the word pseudepigrapha means that whoever signed his name to it isn't really the person. Uh, and so, like the Book of Enoch. Did Enoch write yeah, that? They didn't actually believe that Enoch mm, wrote it. No. Yeah. The Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs. Uh, and, and these are With the, the Assumption of Moses. Yeah, you know, okay. you know, did somebody actually say, oh, I'm watching Moses go up mm. into heaven, so I'll write this down. No, the Assumption of Moses, for example, is written in the first century A.D. And by the way, has a hugely significant parallel with something Jesus says. Where, uh, you know, um, Jesus, remember, he's accused, oh, you're into magic, you know, Beelzebul is empowering you. Well, he says, if Satan is divided against himself, his, you know, his kingdom will collapse. He has, or he has an end. The act, that's mm. literally, I know it's usually translated differently, but literally, he has an end. Okay. In uh, the Testament or Assumption of Moses, this pseudepigraphal text, it says, when the kingdom of God arises... The devil will have an end. Ah. So what is future in the testament of, of uh, Moses is in the present tense happening in Jesus' mm. ministry. And the interesting thing is testament of Moses, because it gives us the calculations of how long the sons of Herod will reign, we can date it precisely to 29 or 30. Oh, nice. Someone wrote that in the time when Jesus is actually right, ministering. Right. And the connection of the appearance of the kingdom of God means the end of the devil. But Jesus agrees. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Philo and Josephus are, are historical sources from the first century that we're going to learn about in session four. They're waving at us that we're, we're out of time here. We've had so much fun talking about this stuff. We could go on all day. Um, if someone signs up, they're going to learn a lot. They're going to have fun. And it will inform and enrich their reading of the Bible. Is that fair to say? I think so. Just as a teaser, on Philo, he says the Logos mm. is a Deuteros Theos, a second God. Wow. Ooh, whoever wrote the prologue of John would agree. Wow, that's awesome. So, you know, it's sort of a word borrowed from Plato, maybe. And then, so it's, it's in the vernacular used by Philo, and then John comes along and says, that word's the one. That's right, and that word now is flesh. That's awesome. Well, folks, uh, thanks for dropping in with Dr. Evans and I today while we discuss these fascinating topics. We hope you'll join us on February the 17th. You can register at thebibleseminary.edu. The seminar is $89, and if you're a TBS student, you can use this toward completion, modular completion of ELE 501. So look forward to seeing you guys soon. God bless.